I end up getting locked up. They end up catching me when I got back to Charleston because I used the card for the time um, at a local hotel. And I, the cops ended up knocking on my door and like, I had so much, I had over an ounce of heroin on me and like a little over an ounce of meth on me and all these syringes, knives, like all this stuff. I've got Charleston County, Berkeley County, Dorchester County, like trying to beat down the hotel room door. Oh my God. I'm like tying sheets together to climb out of the window at this point. <laughs> I look out the window, there's cops surrounding me outside. I'm on the third floor. Oh so God. I sat in there and barricaded myself for 12 hours. Oh my God. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. The clip you just heard is a clip from today's episode. Nate and I interviewed Asa from Charleston and her story is amazing. It's got, as you heard from the clip, it's got, you know, it's got some humor. It's got some craziness, all of like the wild tales around addiction and the stuff that we get into the jail and the being strung out and the criminal lifestyle. And she's also got some tragedy and some trauma and through all of that, she managed to find the beauty in some of the trauma and the beauty in the tragedy. And she has turned that into a new meaning and purpose in her life. And she tells her story with humor and insight. And we had such a great time speaking with her. I think you guys are going to love this one. As always, please reach out to us, Narcan Nate on Instagram, Chasing Heroin on Instagram, and communicate with us. Let us know what you guys think. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Chasing Heroin. My name is Janine. I'm an addict in recovery. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. Hey guys, Nate. thanks for joining. My sobriety date is October 28th, 2018. Glad you're here listening. And I'm super excited to have you on today. Today we have Asa from Charleston. She's actually a friend of JR's. Hi, Asa. Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm Asa. I'm a woman of long-term recovery. I haven't used or drank since June 21st, 2018. Cool. Awesome. So thank you so much for being here. I was telling Asa off air. I've read a little bit about your story in JR's book, but I, I like, I don't want to always know all the details because I love, you know, like when Nate and I are listening to people, sometimes we'll be like, holy shit, like look at each other. Like, what did they just say? And it's like the best part of the show, you know? So like, I just super skimmed it and cause I'm excited to hear. So I know some of the key points, but you know, your, your version of it. And it's so beautifully written. Those pages that you shared in his book are are so beautifully written. I just, you know, I uh, uh, like respect so much that you wrote them, you know, had the, you know, had the courage to share that and write about it so honestly and truthfully, you know, so. Thank you. Thank you for that. So let's just jump right in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, how you got started using what your drugs of choice were, just like get us into the, into the dark years. Okay. Gotcha. Um, well, like I said, um, I haven't used, uh, since June 18th or 21st, 2018, I'm actually from Monk's corner, South Carolina. It's a little town here, um, near Charleston, about 30 miles. Um, I was, um, uh, born June 15th, 1980. Uh, my mother was 15. My father was 20 and they were actually suffered from substance use disorder. Um, and I was around a lot of activity, and a lot of um, a lot of drug activity, drinking all the time. They were very abusive to one another, verbally, physically. Um, so that was the kind of environment I was raised in, and it was like my normal, our normal. Like that's what I thought. Like every family went through. Every family, um, ha, you know, uh, 
experienced. And, um, you know, um, another thing I'd like to share is like, I'm an empath and I was tapped into those empath abilities at a very young age. So taking on those energies and those, um, uh, the, the negative, uh, the, the emotions of my, my mother and father um, were very uh, painstaking for me. Um, and I felt them at a very young age. Um, I was introduced to marijuana around the age of 10. And uh, when I hit that, that joint for the first time, it like took all that away. Like I was able to escape my reality with marijuana. Who gave you a joint when you were 10? I had an older cousin um, that was uh, five years older than me that smoked marijuana and she, I, I kept asking for it and she was, you know, she was young as well. And again, you know, we're surrounded in this environment where this is our normal because she was in the same environment as I. So, you know, we didn't know any better. Um, I definitely didn't know any better. My parents smoked, my parents drank. And I mean, I would drink as well, like drink beer out of their cans, but you know, they would never allow me to of course have my own. Um, there was some type of morality there, but not much, you know, because I'm, again, they had us in this environment where um, these things were taking place. Um, so I started with the marijuana, then I quickly, I think my 12th birthday with her again, um, she allowed me to do like a shot of Jim Beam every minute for like 22 minutes. I lasted, oh, I ended shit. up getting alcohol poisoning. Um, and I was like praying to the porcelain God for two days. Oh my God. Um, yeah. And, and you would think at that point, like, oh, I would never touch alcohol again, but again, it was something else to take me out of my reality and really take that empath ability off of me. Um, and then I really didn't realize what it was that I, I was feeling or um, even uh, racing thoughts. Um, but, it, you know, it was, I was picking up on other people and I didn't know it. I had no clue. Every time I would try to talk about it with an elder in my family, you know, they kind of chuckled and literally told my mom I needed some psychiatric help. Um, and, you know, cause they, I guess they were, you know, ignorant to the, to the fact as well of what it was. So when you say empath, why don't you describe for our audience what you mean by that and how that like manifested? So I don't really realize when it started happening. I just know that as a small child, like even though I didn't know what was going on around me being young, I knew what was going on wasn't right because it was this unsettling feeling inside of me where I was feeling anxious and uh, racing thoughts, scared, a lot of fear because I was feeling these other things. Um, and I honestly lost myself in other people and in crowds. Um, and I would just try to escape and isolate even as a small child, like finding me in my closet or in my room under blankets or under the bed um, because of all this other stuff, the drinking, the using of going on in my household. Um, that was my only escape. I felt like until I found the substances. Okay. Um, so I, even today, I mean, I, I've learned to be able to recognize, be aware that what I'm feeling is not me. I mentally, I have to mentally, spiritually, and emotionally prepare myself to go into large crowds, Walmart, Target, the mall, um, conventions, like all these things. And I have to do it in increments. It can still be very overwhelming, but I've learned to be able to deal with that at this point. So um, like when you walk by someone, if they feel sad, you feel it. I feel it. Oh, crazy. Even I if can, you don't I, know, they're not outwardly crying. You feel it. I, I feel it. I feel it. Yeah. Oh, so there's like a psychic aspect to this a little. There definitely is. And there's, okay. I'm tapping in more and more to those things now okay. that I'm in recovery and I'm learning and I'm educating myself on these abilities and these blessings, so to speak. I, I thought it was a curse for many, many years, but like I said, it's turned into a blessing to be able to help people. Um, cause I can feel what people are feeling before they even approach me. I mean, I could feel it. 
I can feel it. I can't maybe identify where it's coming from if I'm in a crowd of a room, but eventually I can because they're drawn to me. It's just really weird. Can you feel anything through Zoom from me? Or from um, me? You know, usually when I'm asked, it's hard for me to. Okay, fair. Um, uh, can I get back with you on that though? Yeah, 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 yeah. Message when we're done and let me just feel it out once okay. this is done. Okay, I, cool. I definitely relate to that. Yeah, I'm an empath too. So I can just be around people and I can like feel their emotions and their energy. It's 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 very, like it took me, I don't even know. I was probably sober for the first time when I realized this. I was like, what's wrong with me? Like I thought it was a burden and it does suck sometimes. Like it sucks because I have to like prepare myself and like do all these things like and that's like, honestly, why I'm not really a people person, because like all that stuff like affects me. Um, it can be good and bad. That's crazy, Nate. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So I think everyone has that empath ability. Like they okay. can tap in. It's just if they're willing to tap in and really acknowledge it and accept themselves for who they are. Mm-hmm. I, I, and, you know, I think um, it as we get sober and for me, I'm very spiritual and I tap and I do Reiki. I work with crystals. I do a lot of spiritual things, water, nature, all the things. And like, that's very healing for me. Mm-hmm. I have to make sure that I, you know, stay grounded and aligned spiritually um, so that I don't get overwhelmed with everybody else's shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were feeling that way when you were young, obviously you didn't have the words to verbalize this. Correct. The gym beam. And then where do we go from there? Yeah. The alcohol um, was, was, you know, at 12 was my first experience with the alcohol. And again, it took me away from that reality. Um, And as I, you know, I'm in school, I was fairly good in school. I played soccer. I was a cheerleader. I did all these things very popular, so to speak. Um, I bullied other bullies, um, stuck up for kids that were less unfortunate that got picked on. Um, I was very well known. um, And, and that like fed my ego and that like, you know, I started hanging out with like the wrong crowd and, and using cocaine and tripping on shrooms and like doing ecstasy and acid and experimenting with all these uh, hallucinogens and such. Um, I, I, I did graduate high school. I graduated six months pregnant. Um, if it wasn't like one thing I, I tried to feel like tried to change how the way I was feeling, it was like men, drugs, alcohol, sports. It was always like a lot of whatever I was doing. You were going to high school pregnant? I did. I graduated high school six months pregnant. Yeah. What was yeah. that like with other kids? Um, actually, um, I missed a lot of my senior year because of that. Well, not because of that, just because I just didn't want to go to school. My parents, I got in trouble for truancy that senior year. It really started taking an effect, my using and drinking my senior year. Once I got pregnant, I like, I didn't do any drinking or using. I I did the next right thing. I stayed very clean. Um, But after I had her, uh, it was like back, back to, back to square one, you know, it was like back to using and drinking all over again. Um, And, you know, it was like different chapters of my life were different substances. You know, I can like write a book about the different years of substances because it started out with like marijuana and drinking, then it went into like mushrooms and then ecstasy and acid and a a lot of years of that. And at all the while I'm taking opiates, you know, uh, prescribed, um, from having, uh, I ended up getting sciatica when I got pregnant with her and the doctor prescribed me five milligram lower taps. Those were my first experience with prescription pain medication. Once I found that, I mean, it took me out of myself, you know, I didn't have to feel anything. Um, I felt like I was on top of the world that I could conquer anything. I could be in front of crowds and it not bother me. I could make friends very easily. I could be very outspoken and, um, 
really be the life of the party, which I thought was what I, what I was supposed to be doing. And right. it's, I reflect on as I'm reflecting on it now, it's funny. I can laugh about it, but, um, it's, it just, it's just not the right thing, of course. Um, so, you know, it went on with these substances. Um, my mom was like, um, you know, all the while, I mean, my parents, of course, they're doing their own thing and living their life. And, um, you know, my mom was like a manager of a local fitness center and got me a job with her. Um, so I was a personal trainer nutritionist for like nine years in this, in this frame. Um, and I'm using and drinking the whole time we're working together. You know, um, I was very, we were both very successful at that and I had a lot of income. So I just, I, I made money and I could just spend and, and do what I wanted. I really didn't have any other responsibilities. Well, I mean, I was taking care of my daughter, but like I was making really, really good money doing what I was doing. Um, and it gave me like a gateway and, and a, and a, um, an opportunity to just spend. Um, and that's what I did. Um, so, you know, as the years went on and my, my disease progressed, you know, I, I was introduced to crack cocaine, um, which was really when my spiral started, like that really took me to the depths, like really of hell. Uh, I was doing, I started doing some things. I started prostituting. I was panhandling for money on the streets of Charleston. Um, and I was, you know, doing a lot of criminal activity is when that really started. And I was probably around 28 or 29. Um, the crack years were, uh, were, were really dark. And in the same, in the same token, you know, I was introduced to heroin. Um, I actually went from pain, pain meds to methadone and then from methadone to heroin. Okay. Um, and that happened just like so quickly. And all the while I'm still smoking crack. I'm, I'm doing all these things and, and, um, just living that lifestyle of prostitution and, um, you know, on the streets and abandoned houses. How much were you spending on crack and heroin? Like that just sounds gnarly. Like, cause I know what it's like to be dope sick. I never smoked crack. I sold crack because I knew like what it would be. And I already had like a gnarly opiate addiction. So how much were you spending? Dude, I would set, okay. When I was panhandling, this is before the prostitution started. I would set a number in my head to $400 and I wouldn't stop panhandling until I hit 400. That was a day, four to you, $700 a day. You could panhandle $400? I yeah. could barely get 20 bucks when I was out there asking for money. I, I carried a gas can. I carried a gas can. I did too. I played the whole part. Like I would have keys and a gas can and be like, I ran out of money. I just need some to fill up the thingy. I would act like a cute girl that didn't even know what it was called and be like, do you just have like $2? But I would also stop at about 20 bucks and be like, okay, cool. I can get well. You would go yeah, to I 400 didn't, bucks. I didn't stop. I did not stop. I would work. Like if you knew the area where I live, it's like Somerville Goose Creek. I would hitchhike a ride after I hit the Somerville area. And like, I would hit these two major shopping centers where Target was and then where Walmart was and Lowe's. And I would start on one side, go down, go across the street and work the other side, get a ride to the next town, do it there, get a ride to the next town and do it there. Or I'd hit the flea market on a Saturday or Sunday. And like, they would just, I mean, I wouldn't stop. I that is some serious hustle though. And this is what I'm saying about drug addicts. We have some serious hustle. And I think that that's why we can be so successful later. Like, I, I mean, that is grinding. That's grinding. And I know I'm obviously on. it's not in a positive vein, but like that is grinding. That is learning how to hustle. Nobody is helping you completely self-sufficient. Like that's a hustle, you know? Yeah, I definitely did that. I definitely hustled. And like at the end of the panhandle, if I didn't have any more money, that's whenever I would 
uh, sell myself, sell myself. Like I would just be like, okay, here, I'm not going back out there. It'd be like midnight at night. I'm not going to make any money panhandling at that time. I'm out of drugs. I would do whatever it took to get the next bag. I remember my mom telling me, she's like, if you just put half the energy that you do into your addiction and using into your recovery and sobriety and something positive, you would be uh, forced to be be reckoned with and of course in the moment when she's saying that, I'm like here you are smoking a blunt with me doing some lines of cocaine who are you to be telling you know what I mean like oh I mean, god you know what I mean I didn't listen to none of that uh, uh, no respect right I have two questions where was your daughter during this time and did your parents ever get clean um so my dad's been clean for 10 years now my mom just hit three years oh yeah that's awesome, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can my, I tell you, you're the first guest I've had. I've had guests whose parents used, none of them are, are most of them are not in recovery because there it was a different generation. It wasn't, you know what I mean? There wasn't drug court. There wasn't a lot of access to some of that stuff. I'm very happy for you. I'm very happy for your parents. Well, my dad's not in recovery. He just white knuckles it. He's absolutely miserable. That's neither here nor there. My <laughs> mother, on the other hand, she works a program and she's, okay. She's in the, she's working on it. I'm just going to go with that. You know, her recovery is her recovery though. It has nothing to do with me. I, I know what I do and where I'm at and when I'm going to continue. So are they um, still together? Not, no, they've been okay. separated since okay. I was like two. And okay. uh, yeah, that was a whole, yeah. I, I didn't add any of that in the story in the beginning, but no, they're definitely not together. Okay. okay. Do you work 12 steps? I do. Do you go to meetings with your mom? I have. I've told my story to her home group in Savannah, Georgia. Um, they they kind of uh, paid for my train ticket to come out and tell my story for her one year. Um, but she's now in the Charleston area, um, back in Charleston. Um, so she's doing her thing. I'm trying to keep that separate because I, you know, I yeah. I'm, I try to motivate her to like get a sponsor here, mom. Like continue oh, yeah. the program, but I have to. I just kind of have to separate myself and just be your daughter. You know. So- what I would do, I would go to the, if it was my mom or my dad and they were in the, the rooms, I would go there and just snipe share at them and then probably leave. No, I'm just kidding. I just wanted to say, I'm just kidding. I probably would though, just to be petty. <laughs> just one time. That share stare. <laughs> yeah, you know? just, yeah, just snipe them across the room and then just, <laughs> just to get it in. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> so my daughter at this time was at a certain point, I mean, my, my disease had progressed and, uh, DSS was called into my home. I couldn't pass a drug screen. Um, she was taken out and put in, um, to my godmother ended up getting custody or her godmother ended up getting custody of her. Um, and I, I didn't follow a safety plan. I didn't get sober. I just kind of hauled butt out of the state and, and just like ran for years. Um, and you know, I, I started doing these shutdowns on paper mills and, um, working these long, long hours uh in these plants um and selling drugs like on the plant and it was just it was just crazy uh insanity what's a shutdown a shutdown is like whenever they shut down a plant uh to do repairs on like the pipe pipe the piping the bowl the boilers the uh, anything that needs repairs inside of a paper mill this is what we did oh so um, you did legitimate work during oh yeah that time. I was, I oh, was okay working but i okay. was like seasonal work i was with this guy that was a welder and he did the work um okay yeah and i was just kind of along with him and uh, working in the tool room i was the tool lady so I, okay I, that's but yeah so you know, as, as we're going through that and we're going back and forth, you know, I was still, I was smoking a lot of crack with him. He was a dope boy and, uh, he ended up getting like a 
job and then working on the side selling drugs. So it was kind of like I was, you know, had an endless supply at that point. Uh, I didn't have to panhandle. I didn't have to sell my body. Um, I had like that direct supply there. Um, and, and, you know, we, we did that for probably three years. Um, and then I came, but we came back and uh, I really started getting into more of the heroin. Um, I was on methadone as we were traveling and then also, you know, do, smoking crack on the side and um, trying to stay awake. Um, but when we came back, he ended up leaving and I was like, kind of left at my own devices again and had to get back out in that survivor mode. And, and that's when I started prostituting really heavily, living in hotels, working, uh, you know, being, I was trafficked for a while, um, you know, till I got, till I realized that like I could make this money without having someone making the money and taking my money from me. Like I started doing it on my own. Okay. Um, and, and I did that for probably four or five years. Um, and, you know, as I'm going through this and I'm, I'm picking up these little charges. I end up getting into a couple of stings for prostitution um, and getting busted that way. And I would go to jail and then I would not go to court. And then I would, you know, get a failure to appear and I would sit for a little while and I would have these little moments of clarity here and there without having my conscious clouded with chemicals, you know? Um, and then I ended up getting my, a hold of my sugar daddy's credit card and running like 50 something thousand dollars from like for in 27 days from here to Myrtle beach and, and, um, end up getting caught. Oh um, shit. Yeah. So you they, just took they, it on the road, buying gas, staying at hotels a limo to the gas station. Oh, I mean, shit. I was paying for this. Oh, I love bill. it. This is getting like, good. My eyes I went up because I knew he was going to dial in on this. A limo oh, to I the gas it. station. Oh, yes. This is so good. It was crazy. It was absolutely insane. And what, how I got caught is that he was took his family to Disney World and I had used the card the same time. And the bank ended up red flagging and contacting him. And then they pressed charges. So I used the card 42 times, but I was using um, a fake ID checking into these hotels. So somebody ended up stealing the purse with the fake ID. So I ended up having to check in with my own ID oh. and the facial recognition got me. So I was only charged with two, 22 felonies, but they had so, so many, so many charges. Cause they were on the other ID. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I ended up getting sentenced in Clarendon County. I had I've never even been to Clarendon County. I had never at that point been there in Manning, South Carolina. It's this little podunk town. Is, is that where Myrtle, is that where Myrtle beach is? No, Myrtle beach is Ori County. So okay. he lives in, he lived in Clarendon County. Okay. That's where his bank was based oh, out right. of his bank press. Oh, okay. So like I ended up getting locked up. They ended up catching me when I got back to Charles six I used the card for the time um, at a local hotel and I, the cops ended up knocking on my door and like I had so much I had over an ounce of heroin on me and like a little over an ounce of meth on me and all these syringes knives like all this stuff I've got Charleston County Berkeley County Dorchester County like, trying to beat down the hotel room door oh my god I'm like tying sheets together to climb out of the window at this point <laughs> I look out the window, there's cops surrounding me outside. I'm on the third floor. Oh so god. I sat in there and barricaded myself for 12 hours. Oh my god. All of the drugs. <laughs> I was so high. I don't know how I'm alive. I should have been dead because I just kept doing like 
Oh God. Were they yelling with like the megaphone? Like, come out. They were yelling with the megaphone and they had this contraption with this wire that would go under the door to get the flap off the inside of the door. And they kept undoing the flap and I would run to the door and flap it back. So they couldn't open the door and they were like cussing and yelling and. Oh, so if that flap isn't up, they can't bust the door open. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. I mean, I guess they probably could have, right. but I guess they didn't know what they were going to find behind it. That's so they true. Like, I, I don't know why. I, I didn't ask that, you know? Yeah. Like I, I was so high. I finally just let him in the hotel room once. You all did? The- yeah I was like you know what I'm busted like I'm not getting out of this I already checked the window I couldn't get out the window like they're they're everywhere they were not leaving they kept did you get everything flushed no I did most majority and yeah I flushed some at the end because I was like I just couldn't do anymore I was like I can't do anymore like there's no way I can't do it oh my god um but when they came in, I had like my weapons on the table and I had like this box of syringes where I had that were used. And I'm like, here's all the paraphernalia. Here are my weapons. This is what happened. This is what I'm doing. And this is, let's, let's just go take me now. Um, and, and when they picked me up, that's when they hit me with those 22 felony charges, um, from Clarendon County, but I had a hold in Charleston County. So I had to go do that time first. Um, and once I went there, um, I don't remember what that was for. I can't even, I I don't know. I was arrested so many times. Um, but that last time, you know, I got, I sat for a little while and got a little bit more clarity, you know? Um, but I mean, before this happened, before that last arrest happened, um, you know, here I am, I'm on the streets of this, of Charleston and Ashley phosphate. And I'm like running, um, and I'm doing the most, of course, like always. And, uh, you know, I get a call from my daughter after all those years, she had just turned 17 and she had ran away from her godmother's house. And she was like, where are you at? Um, I'm outside in the parking lot of the Econo Lodge on Ashley Phosphate. And she had found me. Oh. I don't know how, I don't know if she asked people, but she was literally at the hotel I was at. Um, and she stayed with me. She came in, I let her in. Like we, we did a little bit of talking, but I was so high and I had her around this environment of like using and prostitution and like all this stuff for six months, like, like back to every day. Um, and it's just crazy. Like six months to the day she was with me. Um, and, and I, she ended up hooking up with this older gentleman that was like my age. And I was like, not having, I had him beat up like twice. Um, she ended up like running away from me on the streets. And like, I, she called me the night before and was like, Hey mom. And, um, told me where she was at. And I was like, well, come meet me tomorrow. If you and -and so-and-so want to be together, y'all come just, we'll talk about it. Like who am I to even try to be a mother at that point? Cause I hadn't been a mom in like freaking years, you know, ever really. And, um, so the next morning I got a phone call that she had been in a car accident and that I need to go to the hospital, local hospital. Um, and when I went in, I couldn't find her anywhere. And I was met by the chaplain and they let me know that she had lost her life. Um, well, that, that she was on life support and that she would lose her life. Um, so going in there, uh, I remember that morning I was like dope sick. I think there was a reason for all of that at this point, but then, you know, of course I was just miserable. Um, I didn't have any dope that morning. Um, and I got there and I'm like sitting by her side and I'm like, you know, I, I didn't believe it was real. I was like in denial, you know? Um, but you know, they were keeping her alive on epinephrine, um, and keeping her heart going, beating so that the family could come in and say their goodbyes. And when everybody left that afternoon, she passed away around 321. Um, you know, 
I felt her energy leave her body, which was one of the most profound spiritual experiences that I've ever had. And it's actually what led me to start seeking spirituality. Cause at that point I realized there was more to this world than just using and fucking prostituting and selling drugs and like living the lifestyle that I was living, you know, and it led me to start seeking. Now, did I get sober after that? No, I did not. You know, two years for two years after that, I ran, I ran harder than I ever ran before. Um, and the last time I was locked up was May 21st, 2018, which was two years to the date of her passing, actually two years to the date of us burying her. So, you know, um, I didn't realize that in the moment, you know, like I, um, I didn't I, until I had like the fog clear while sitting in the county jail. Like I didn't realize that date had any significance until I was like looking back on the records, uh, and I was like, "Holy shit! This there's way more to this than than anything physical on this earth," you know. Um, and a month later, like I used in, in the county jail, uh, there was Suboxone that came through. There was meth. There was heroin. And the last time I used was June twentieth, two thousand and eighteen. Wow. So that that's why my sobriety date is the twenty first. Wow. Um, yeah. So. You know, I had, I had been sentenced through those charges in Manning, like I was telling you, and, and um, I was sentenced to drug court. I ended up absconding from there, running for nine months after that, and then, you know, eventually getting locked up that day, that, that 21st of May, and um, catching four more felonies. Um, and, and I didn't think I would have another chance. So you got drug court on the, when all the cops were there banging on the door. You got right. arrested, sentenced yeah. to drug court. You absconded. I did. And that's when she found you. So you were on no. the run. No. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, I'm sure that already passed at that point. Oh, yeah. oh, she had already passed. passed. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you absconded from drug court, got uh-huh. arrested again, and yeah. then they let you into drug court a second time. Right. Right. In a different County. Okay. Yeah. In okay. a different County. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I went through drug court. I, I mean, actually in jail, like I was, uh, I was on this like spiritual path already. Um, I was introduced to like 12 step meetings um, inside the county jail. Uh, and I was given this book called The Wise Heart by Jack Cornfield, which is like, um, it's a science of the, uh, the it's, it's a science of the, it's like the Buddhist science. This is science of the mind, not the religion. It's like a, a Buddhist principles book. Um, it teaches you awareness and mindfulness and uh, self-awareness and um, being present and like, um, detachment and uh, forgiveness and all these other things. And like, I started reading that book and it literally like changed my, and when I realized that I had control of everything with my thoughts, yeah. the, it was a plot twist in my life cha- started to change. Okay. Um, you know, and, and I read that book and then I read the untethered soul and I read like the five love languages. And I, again, you know, I'm going to these 12 step meetings and I'm really like, going inward with meditation. Um, there was actually a life coach that was in, on the yard on the rec yard with us in, in the county jail who had caught some like petty charges, but she was there for almost the whole stay. I was there. Oh, wow. She was a Reiki master and a yogi and like all these things. She was really caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> she kind of, she kind of guided me. We were doing yoga every day and, oh. and she was like, teaching me about the chakras and like really doing some energy healing with me. And, um, you know, this started my, this started my journey, you know? Um, and and I really didn't realize that there was change happening. I was just kind of just like going with the flow of life being in County jail, you know? Can I ask you a question? When you say the wise heart and you're in charge of your thoughts and that, that was new, what do you mean by that? Like, give me an example of like uh, something that would change for you now that you had that information, like 
So I was creating my reality with my thoughts, even when I was using, all I was thinking about was drugs and whatever it took to get the next drug, obsessing about that. And I was creating that around me. And once I realized that I was the creator of all of my demise, I was the creator of all of my using of all of the situations I put myself in out of all the chaos that I was in. Like I created all that. Like I played the victim for so long. Like I was molested as a kid. I was raped. I was this, I was right. You know, I did all these things and blamed everyone else for what was going on with my life. And in all actuality, I realized that I did all that. No, I probably did not, you know, create the rape um, or molest molestation, but ultimately like everything else, like was my fault, (laughs) you know? And I realized that, you know, I can control these things with my thought process and my emotions, you know, setting intention, manifestation. Uh, and I learned all these things, uh, in that, in the last in the jail. So, wow. And then by that token, you can create your new reality too, right? If you created the chaos, you can create the new order or whatever new life you want. That's what, like, what an amazing, I'm so glad that that was the experience that you had while you were in there. That poor life coach, what was she doing in there? How, they, did she do okay? Was they probably she confused their crystals with something else. <laughs> no. uh, I think there was like a, it was like a uh, improper use of a telephone is what she was in there for. Yeah. And I was like, I think that was all universe guide, like lining, aligning everything. Oh, that was like, a godsend for you. That was all God. It was all yeah, God. That was a godsend. You know, like, was, that's crazy. That it had that much of a detrimental, like, they're not detrimental, but such a like positive experience on your life. There's those people that come into our, it's the craziest thing that you're like, what, how did this, because I have the, that experience too with someone coming to my life and my life completely changed. And it's like, how did this even happen? And you just like, you're just somewhere one day and they show up and you're like, and you think back on it, you're like, what just happened? Yeah. I mean, I think about that whole, I think back on that whole experience those seven months I was sitting the last time in County jail and how things just like aligned up and how they happened. I'm just like, <laughs> There's no other explanation. Yeah. Like, oh, I, yeah. There's no, there's no other explanation. And that to me is the beautiful yeah. thing about a group of people in recovery, because I, I, I believe that with my story, I, and he just told me something a few weeks ago about the guy with the house, Nate, that was yeah. my, my God that day. I'm, yeah. I'm going through another step two right now. And that night was Nate's story about his house and yours will probably be mine now. Like when you start getting together and you understand that there is just no other explanation. My friend Zach said it once too. He was like, I mean, I guess you could call it luck, but a lot of us are getting lucky and we're getting lucky a lot. And I was like, that's true. You know, that's, that's totally true. So the whole time you're there though, do you think you're awaiting a prison sentence or? You yeah, need- I just, okay. I chopped it up. I had 11 years over my head. It was like, oh, 11, you complete a uh, drug court or you're going to get 11 years. I ended up catching four more felonies, distribution of heroin, um, distribution of methamphetamine, second offense, um, you know, uh, scheduled two. it was like all these things, false, false information to the police, 22nd driver suspension. Like I had these, I was like, okay, I'm gone, you know, and right. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah, I have a question. So I thought of this. So you you had $50,000 and you took a limo to the gas station, but you didn't think to get some sunglasses and a wig to cover your, (laughs) (laughs) like, come on. (laughs) I mean, we don't think about that stuff, but. I did have wigs. So listen, I did have wigs. I had 40 something different wigs. I was a different person every day. Sometimes three people a day. Like that didn't matter. Google facial recognition can pick up all of that. Really? Hair don't care. It does not matter about any of that. Oh, I didn't know that. I learned that from experience. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Cause that yeah. was a good point. Oh my gosh. Facial recognition can see through wigs. 
Yeah. I mean, if you go back on my Facebook, you can look at my Facebook right now and go back to those pictures. You can see me in a wig, like multiple wigs a day. Okay. I'm going to look. <laughs> We're friends on Facebook. I'm going to look. Yeah, yeah. Go back and look. Like there was it's something serious. Like I was a different person every single day. Okay, so you were trying to hide. You were on the run, and it caught oh, you. Definitely, anyway. definitely. Oh I responded. Like I was facing. I had twenty-two felons. I didn't go to drug court. I was like, I was, I was just balls to the wall. I was so just like, the guy it. whose card you had. He was with his family at Disneyland. Was his wife there? Oh, oh, she was pissed. <laughs> she well, was. Pissed. Found out later. I mean, ironically enough, and I don't. I, he didn't show up to court, but the state had enough evidence that, yeah. and it was the bank. It wasn't him. Okay. So you know, I don't know whatever happened. I've never talked to him since. To be honest, oh, no. Even contact. I never contacted <laughs> him after that. I mean, of course, I was like mad because of because he pressed charges, right? Like I was angry. Like I can't believe oh. you pressed charges on me. What do you mean? How like, could you? How could you? Yeah. How, how dare you? Do you know who I am? Oh my God. The thing is, he gave me the card number to pay for rooms and pay my cell phone bill, but I just really took advantage of the situation. Right. Yeah. Everybody. Oh, who wouldn't? Phone. I would have too. I'd have ran that up real quick. Oh yeah. He God. got like a half a million dollar settlement. Like I thought I, I hit the jackpot. Oh my God. I, didn't even have, I barely spent any money out of that. <laughs> yeah. What's 50,000? What's 50,000? Oh Lord. That's, that's chunk change. It's nothing. It's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so another book I read while I was in Charleston County was the Addiction Manifesto, the first, the first go round. So, oh, JR's he, book. JR's book. So, I is that no how you book. found him? Was through his yeah. book? Yeah. So oh. I read his book. It hadn't even been published yet. It was the first copy of it, not the copy that you have with my story in it, but the, 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 the copy before that. Right. Okay. So I'm reading it and this guy's in drug court and I'm not even realizing putting two to two together when I get out and I end up getting sentenced to drug court again, you know, I go to drug court for the first time and I'm meeting this guy, Jerry, and I'm not even still putting two and two together, you know? And, um, it's crazy. Like when I got out, um, you know, I, I didn't know where I was going to go because like, I had, you know, I, the only life I saw I knew was like hotels and like the house couch surfing and like dope spots, you know, trap houses. Like that's the only thing I knew. And I didn't have like a safe place. I had burned all the bridges. Like all my family, they didn't want nothing else to do me. I done lied, stolen. I done raw, like do it, done the most, like, you know, and they, I, they, I didn't, they didn't have to do with me um my my drug dealer ended up keeping money on my books the whole time i was in charleston county and when i got out he picked me up from jail and oh, the first wow. thing he did was gave me a pack it was like here's an ounce of heroin and here's an ounce of ice make you some money here's you a phone let's take you to get some clothes so i jumped right back into the lifestyle as soon as i was released right oh, shit. And, and i'm like oh god i got a report to drug court it's like my friend they're, they're sending it to me they're like they're telling me part of this structure is like three meetings a week you know you have to go to iop and intensive outpatient at this Charleston center. And you have to go to court at general sessions downtown on broad street. Once a week, like give all these things in the structure that you have to follow. And, um, remember the first week of drug court, I went in and I had like the drugs on me in the courtroom. And I didn't even realize it because I was so caught up in that, that life already back. I, I mean, I jumped right back into it. I was so caught up. I didn't even realize it. And I sat back down after I went in front of the judge and I had an itch and I went to scratch and it was in my bra. And I was like, Oh my God, something's got to give. Like, so the first week I didn't go to any meetings. The judge ended up being in the program. I found it out later. And he sentenced me to, to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I was like, this is what you have to do. So I got sanctioned my first drug court, you know? And at that point I went back out to the car and my dope boys outside. I'm like, dude, something's got to get like, I, I'm either going to 
continue doing this. I'm going to use, and I'm going to, I'm going to use, and I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep selling. I'm going to end up using yeah, or yeah. B I'm going to have to do something different. Like something's got to change. Cause at that point I hadn't slept in four days. I'm selling all this drugs, staying up all night. Like I'm, I, again, I hadn't used, but I was like, I felt like I had, because yeah. I was like in that energy and in that shit again. Um, so I reached out to a girlfriend of mine that, you know, she was in recovery and she's like, Hey, have you ever heard of Oxford house? And I was like, nah, never heard of it. So she gave me some numbers to local houses. I ended up calling uh, and setting up an interview. Um, and so like when I'm like, okay, I'm at a turning point. So I'm like, Hey, can you drop me off at a local 12 step meeting? Cause like the judge I'm scared at this point. Like, I'm like, okay, is one going to go one way or another. Right. So I ended up telling him, I'm like, I, I'm not going to be able to sell drugs. Like, I can't do this. If I'm going to stay sober and keep doing this drug court thing, I'm not going to be able to live this lifestyle anymore, you know? So I ended up doing the interview for Oxford House. I got accepted. I ended up giving the pack back to the dope boy because like I was, you know, and at that point I knew something had changed in my life. Like I didn't realize until that moment, like I gave the drugs back. Like that was miraculous for yeah. my and the person that I once was. And he ended up giving me the move-in fee in the first week to get in that Oxford house in exchange. It was like, you're connected. Yes, he did. He wow. did. Yeah. Um, and I knew him for like 20 years. So it's, you know, it was a little deeper than just that, but you know, he's like, here, do the next right thing. I'm rooting for you. Like, bam. Wow. So that was the turning point in my life that, that meeting, that first 12 step meeting that I went to on the outside, you know, I ended up walking in that 12 step meeting. Ironically, the president of the Oxford house that I got accepted into was sitting inside that 12 step meeting that day. It was all just aligned up perfectly, you yeah. know, and I, you know, I've taken the, I just hit the ground running, man. And I haven't looked back. I took the suggestions. I got a sponsor, you know, I'm working the 12 steps. I continuously do that, you know, um, and things have just like slowly progressed in my life. Like, you know, I, I started working. It was hard for me to get a job, of course, with all those damn felonies. Um, and, and, and just the lifestyle that I lived. You Where know, did uh, you get a job with those felonies? Where did yeah, you start? God's got a great sense of humor. The comfort suites, you know? <laughs> oh, I mean, it could have been Motel 6. <laughs> no, actually, I'm banned from the property for life. That's all. <laughs> oh. I have no trespassing on any Motel 6 property. That's oh, my God. I love it. This is getting yeah. better. I, I'm here for this. I it's love crazy. it. It's crazy. So That's, that's bad. Like, I just want to point that. That is bad. Because you can, like. You have to literally murder someone or damn near <laughs> close to get kicked, to get banned from a Motel 6. Like that, that is, this is insane to me. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, yeah I was one of those prostitution stings I was telling you about. They, <sighs> oh, oh, I mean, that's, that's. Oh. Yeah, there okay. you go. Oh, okay. That, that checks out. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That there were a lot sense. of drugs found in the room. It was a big ordeal. So yeah, I'm not allowed on the property and I'm okay with that today. I don't I'm, need that light, you know, right. Like, right. Keep the light off. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah you know I got a job at comfort suites and uh, they gave me a chance and I kept that same job for 18 months um oh. I continued to thrive in my Oxford house I learned like all the positions I ended up taking a chapter uh position in Oxford house like working my way up on that level uh in the recovery community and the COVID hit you know and uh that was like uh what the hell and I lost my job of course was able to you know get some unemployment but you know I actually started college um to get my associates in arts and okay. and started that uh commencing drug court successfully um and like you know just like just keep I just keep doing it just gets better and better and better it's just wild um yeah. you know I started school and then I ended up ironically enough like 
the, when I first got sentenced to drug court, I was supposed to go through treatment at a local treatment center agency. It's an intensive outpatient agency when I absconded and I was offered a job there as a peer support specialist there. January was a year. So a year and a couple of months I've been working there. Oh, Um, so you work there right now. I work there right now. Yeah. And then, um, and then I actually got offered the outreach coordinator position for Oxford houses two okay. years ago and in, D- in October will be two years for me. Um, so like all these things, like, it's just crazy how full circle it comes. I just graduated college with my associates in arts. Oh my um, God. I practice, yeah. I practice Reiki. I'm level two certified right now for energy healing, which is what the chakras and like this life coach taught me in that, that little Charleston County, like <laughs> cell. now I'm like healing and I'm doing the things and I sponsor women. Um, I have a sponsor. I mean, I'm very active in the recovery community. Um, I'm the treasurer for CMA. I'm the treasurer for HA. Uh, you know, I hold service positions on a district level for AA, um, you know, just giving back to the community and what saved my life, you know? Um, and, and, and it's crazy. You know, some people ask me, they're just like, how do you keep going and doing what you're doing? Like, how does losing your daughter not affect you in a negative way? And I'm just like, because literally that spiritual experience I had with her led me to seek more experiences like that. And I continuously have them now that I'm sober and in recovery, you know? Um, and, and it's like, really, honestly, like she, I, I feel like I lost her losing her saved my life, yeah. you know? And, and it's crazy. Like my beliefs, we are destined. Like we know our destiny. We know what's going to happen. We life. We choose our avatar. We choose how we're going to die. We choose all these things, our mother, our father, and all these things before we're put on this earth. And like for her to make that sacrifice, that selfless act to lose her life at the age of 17 to save her mother later, you know, yeah. that's my belief. You know, and it's just crazy how, um, how these things work, you know? Yeah. Well, and turning it into something positive, like we just interviewed somebody a few weeks ago, you might know her, she's in the Charleston area too. JR recommended her, her husband overdosed and she completely turned her life around. Same thing. And it's sort of like working in his honor and works with, you know, fentanyl uh, Narcan training and overdose awareness. And when you can turn something like that and what a beautiful way to honor the person. Right. And what a beautiful way to honor the life. Correct. And it is my motivation. So like, I don't want, I don't want any mom to ever have to go through what I went through as a mother losing their child before they could get sober. So I've opened the house and I help mostly mommy and me so that I can give the mother another chance to get sober, to be a mom to their child. That's what's so cool about Oxford is they let mothers bring their children in there. Oh, they do. Yeah. Oh, Oh, I didn't know that. We have yeah, daddy in the so, houses too. So yeah, that's yeah. kids as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I, I didn't know, I didn't know that about Oxford when I lived in Knoxville, but, but when I moved out here to California, I'd seen they had like houses like that. I was like, Oh, that's so awesome. Oh, that is cool. I've heard of Oxford house, but I, I didn't know that that was there, that that was there, that they also did, you know, uh, families. Yeah, they do both. Yeah. Yeah. So if you had to tell someone that was new, like a new sponsee, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, something that they should start doing right now to help themselves. What would you tell someone that was new? Mm. Help someone, you know? Yeah. It's instead of ourselves and out of our head. Do something for somebody else and for, you know, not expecting anything in return out of the goodness of your heart, you know? Um, that and meditate. Okay. You know, get in touch with, with you within um, 
you know, spirituality looks different to me today than it did four years ago. And I, I celebrate four years on the 21st. Um, and uh, it just looks totally different today. It's like, it's just continuous evolving. And uh, I'm going through the steps for the fourth time. Like I'm going through the traditions this time. And it's like just constantly peeling back layers, you know, um, be honest, be willing and just surrender you know, so something greater than you, and you don't have to have a tangible thing. You don't have to have my belief, you know, I, my higher power is love. Uh, that's my God. My God is love. Um, I do choose to call it God, but it's like the showing the acting, the feeling of, yeah. you know, um, and doing that, the selfless acts, you know, out of the kindness of your heart. Do you have a specific meditation practice that you do right now? Or what is, what is like a day look like for you? Um, every morning I hit my knees, I do an awakening. I haven't stopped doing that. And, and that's pages 86 through 89 in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I incorporate crystals though, just depending on what my body needs. I, my soul, I just kind of allow that. It looks different every day, you know? Okay. It's a different crystal every day, depending on which healing properties, I guess, that my body needs. And I allow okay. God to guide me, you know, and just like kind of choose my intuition to, to guide me to choose what I need that day. Um, and I'm not perfect. You know, I can't, I, there are mornings that I do wake up late or that I don't make enough time to do it. Um, but sometime throughout the day, I'm going to sit with myself and I'm going to pray and I'm going to do those third and seventh set prayers. And I'm going to do the, the things, um, right. right now I'm working on like forgiveness meditations. Cause I'm still working on some things with, with a couple of my family members that, um, that were things have happened and trauma I've experienced in my past and my childhood. I'm doing a lot of a shadow work at this point today and just really getting to know my shadow self more and more and accepting my shadow self and kind of um, feeling through those things. What is shadow work? I'm curious about that. What is that? Shadow work is like all the negative things about yourself. Like, so my, my opinion, and you know, when I see something in someone that I don't like and I'm judging them for that is something within me that I need to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and whether, whether, whatever it may be like, Oh, I don't like the way that person's talking about well, most likely I've been that person. Um, so I use people as mirrors and it allows me to be able to accept that part of me and be aware, self-aware of that, and then change those actions and behaviors later and just continue to be a better me every day. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. I already have some questions. You got some questions? Okay, cool. Yeah. Good. I was going to see if you had anything. Go. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is not a question, <laughs> but this, this is just me stating this. God forbid, if you relapsed, I would hope that you didn't do any uppers because that Google Facial recognition would have you so messed up. Oh my, you would be like every camera. Oh my God, would be be gone, like smashed <laughs> out. Oh my God. Like for me too, if that happened to me, oh, every camera like done. But I, that was just something in my head because like I couldn't imagine going through that. Oh my God. Um, but what, but this is a serious question though. Um, what was the most traumatic thing that you, like what was the hardest traumatic experience for you to work on and how did you work on it? Because because your whole your whole story is like just trauma trauma just just trauma just just like stacking up. I don't know if I can identify just one. Uh, it can be multiple. It can be multiple. And just like you know, like how do you work through it? Because a lot of like I feel like as we come in, we're we have so much baggage and it's so overwhelming. I feel like whenever the universe or God brings me these women in front of me to help. Right. And I can use those traumas to help someone else that's healing for me. That's where the healing comes in and begins. So I can't say that I haven't been able to use those traumas as a positive thing. 
you know, um, cause they've definitely been able to help others. And I guess that's why it happened to me, you know, and I've kind of accepted it as that, like everything happened for a reason. It became and it made who the woman that I am today. And it's allowed me and place myself in this position to be a vessel to help the next woman through that. So, yeah. you know, a lot of majority of my traumas have been able to surface and heal through that by helping someone else through that, you know, yeah. are they still there? Do they still have some type of effect on me? You know, I try to um, acknowledge those when they come up, kind of the emotion of the trauma and just cry it out. Like I have to kind of allow it to surface and feel through that because if I keep suppressing these things, I'll never heal from them. Uh, and sometimes I go through these like crying phases with clients, with women in recovery, with uh, women that I meet that hurt like strangers, like they approach me and they have this thing. And it's like this overwhelming sense of sharing something with me. And then I share and relate with them, my experience with that. And then I realize the connection and why it was there wow. that allows me to heal. You know, that's where the healing comes in for me. Um, coming to the realization that, um, it's not my fault. You know, I mean, it is at a certain point, you know, there are certain situations, circumstances that I, I know I did create. Um, but there are things that, you know, that happened, you know, that, um, that wasn't my fault, you know, that was an innocent child, um, that experienced a lot of sexual trauma through various family members, um, and, and, uh, being able to help a woman through theirs, wow. you know, their experiences that's been healing for me. One of the most true things that I've thought of since I've started sharing too, is like, the path out of the shame of the experience is to relieve the pain of the experience for someone else. And that changed the color of my world in terms of looking back on my addiction in those years from, oh my God, like I'm a woman who's done these things. What do I do now? And who's going to marry me? I can't work all this stuff. And now I'm so grateful for it. It totally changed how I look at those years. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that side of my life. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful that I went through all of that. Me too. Same. I, I agree. I agree. I think, I think that we don't like, we don't go through things, things go through us and it goes to the next person. And that's like, our part is to like help them go through it. And that like, that allows both of us to know that we're not alone in this. Cause a lot of times when we go through things, we're like, we you know the pity pot, why me? I'm the only one that's ever experienced this thing. And we think that for so many years and it comes, you know, full circle, we get to, we get to be the person who is the person for us to someone else. Indeed. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of the traumas has come up and uh, I just, I mean, I've been single. I stayed single. I tried to get like, of course I tried to like do the early recovery boyfriend thing, you know, and I was suggested to not do that. And of course I went against what my sponsor asked me and I learned why. That. Oh, me too. Me too. Oh, it yeah. was horrible. Um, I oh, didn't yeah. go out. I did not go out. However, he did, but that's besides oh, like, okay. I've continued to like, so I have a pro issues with being very obsessive with, in relationships and with men still and very possessive, um, and, um, power and control. Okay. And manipulation. So those are character defects here. Right. <laughs> um, and I've, I've um, actually just started dating this guy about five months ago. Um, he's in recovery as well. And he's went through the same, he's been the same person, but like me and as a male, you know, okay. it's like we're mirroring each other, but we're able to work a program of recovery and like really uh, identify those shadows and that the, the trauma from past relationships yeah. and not, 
we're trying not to bring it into ours, but like really working through the toxicity of who we could be. And when these things come up, calling, calling ourselves out on it, like I just manipulated you like, babe, I'm sorry, man. Like I didn't do that. You know, like we're not, the dishonesty hasn't come in. That's not been a thing. Like we're so honest and vulnerable and transparent with each other. Like it's been very freeing. I did. I never knew that you could have like an intimate relationship with a significant other and not base it on sex, which has been an, another amazing experience. Yeah. I never knew. Cause I always base my value because of being in that sex industry. Yeah as that was my value. That's who I was. And I could only, however I performed was my value. And that was my original, you know, the sick thoughts that I had, you know, it was Um, literally your value. And that literally was your value. (laughs) And I always had power and control, you know, having, it's just crazy how I don't have to use that. It's very, it's very, um, empowering because I don't have to have power and control and manipulate situations. If I just, once I surrendered, you know, and lived in, in, in God's will and like allowed it to, instead of staying in my will all the time, like it's been very chill. It's cool. Well, you said that to me. I told her, I was like, uh, my co-host is running late. Do we want to push it back or he can do zoom. And she said, I mean, life on life's terms. Right. And I was like, right. Because I, I never operate that way. I'm like, no, no, no. I can jam this circle into a square. I will make this work, you know? And it's yeah, so nice yeah. when like, it's frequently a guest that will say something like that to me. I recorded a, uh, an episode with somebody once and we, I didn't record it. I didn't hit record on the Zoom. That's why I got it started early. And it was like a great episode. And I had to tell this guy that I hadn't even recorded it. And he said, life on life's terms, we can redo it. And I was like, oh, it's a good thing other addicts remind me of this shit because I like never think. I have a question. When you were working at Comfort Suites, were you faced with clearly people using and living that lifestyle? And like, how did it make you feel when that would happen? How would you handle that? So, I mean, I, I had a feel, so the hotel I worked at didn't rent to locals and they didn't take cash. So it kind of okay. took a lot of that crowd out of it, but they okay. still of course seeped in. I mean, they used other people's IDs, they used other people's credit cards, John's, whatever. So there were a lot of people from that lifestyle that I definitely crossed. Um, I, as a matter of fact, I remember like being in the house, like the housekeeping office and we have cameras like all over the hotel and like the cops were called at this room, a King suite ended up having 32 people in it. And everybody that came out of that room on the camera I knew oh my god (laughs) it was like okay this is wild I didn't say anything in the moment I did later on but like I kind of it was just crazy how God works so he would keep me separated like I would know the activity was going on and people were in certain rooms but it just so happened I wasn't on that floor that day or you know I would cross the pass with them in like the lobby sometime but they would be like holy shit Asa like you're sober. Like yeah. you have a job, like, you know, and I guess maybe I was, that was a seed planted for them. I don't know. Or it was a reminder to me, like where I could be, you know, right. so I could see it from both perspectives, but it was, um, yeah, I definitely did. That one, the connect that helped you. Yeah. Do you know, is he clean now? Do you know anything? Is he okay? Or I mean, Ironically enough, I mean, I was working with the, the Mexican cartel for quite some time the, before the last arrest. Um, and we were bringing a lot of methamphetamines in the streets of Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, he was one of the main buyers. Um, oh. And where I locked up um, when I got out, 
uh, probably like a month and a half after I got into Oxford house, the feds picked him up along with the cartel ring and he's doing 17 years fed time right now. Oh my God. So, you know, you would have been in that ring if you had stayed with him, right? Oh yeah. My name was brought up. He said it was dropped so many times. Um, but I know the feds know, like they know, Yes. they know before they ask, you know, they don't just like come to you and say, Hey, are you doing this? They ask you to see if you're going to be truthful with them because they already know anything they ask you. They already know, they already know. You know? Yeah. Um, and I know they know I was in drug court. I know they knew I was in Oxford house. I know they, like, I know they followed me up. I'm, wow. I, I can, you know what I mean? Like I'm not dumb, but, and, and, and he kind of let, he told me, he let them know like, Hey, she's doing the next right thing. Like she's staying sober. She's not using, like she's on the right path. And I introduced him to them. So I'm glad and grateful. That was a whole nother like God thing. Like I could have been caught up in that whole ring, you know, and I wasn't. The federal indictment stuff scares me. So right after I got clean and in 2000, I got clean once in 2013, just for a little bit, right after I left where I was, they did this massive Fed indictment and so many people that I knew were on it. And I know me and my ex, because the way that they can get you is if you're just on the phone, which is maybe what happened to that life coach. If you're just on the phone and we spoke to all of them all of the time, they were at our house. And I'm like, how were we not on this indictment? And I think the only thing that saved us was we would use a pay phone because we didn't even have phones. We weren't trying to be safe. We were just so broke. We didn't have phones. So right. we'd walk across the street to a pay phone. And I'm like, maybe that's what, but those fed indictment thing, that's so scary. I mean, you absolutely would have would have been caught up in that, you know? If you'd been out. There were 31 people in that indictment and I knew every single one of them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like, all right. They're all doing fed time. Wow. Well, I have another question about comfort suites just because I'm curious. I've heard, but when I was using and doing the motel thing, cops, do they come to the register at night and go through and see if anybody's fourth waivers and then go through the rooms? Do they actually do that? Is that real? Or because people would say, I think cops go to like the lobby and say, let me see who's here tonight and see if anybody's a fourth waiver and go to the room. So the only way that that would happen is if somebody like the front desk called the cops to come in. Like okay. there's somebody that's not supposed to be here or no trespassing that might have seen on the cameras that was in another room. Okay. That was my only experience with any cops. Coming. Okay. Um, unless we called them, that was, there okay. were a couple people that kind of like slide through with somebody else in their room. But if they were known at the front desk, then the cops would be called and they'd get trespassing, you know, violation okay. of trespass or whatever. Um, but other than that, no, I'm, I'm. Okay. Yeah, maybe that wasn't a real thing. I was always scared about it because I was always with some asshole fourth waiver and I'm like, oh my God, we're getting in the door. Somebody's going to knock on the door any minute, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Remind us which hotel it was with the Google facial recognition. Well, any apparently every Myrtle Beach on the Strand, every hotel in Myrtle Beach on the Strand has Google facial recognition. Oh. Any camera can have Google facial recognition. Damn. All they have to do is play the tape and then okay. run facial and you get picked up. Any camera can do that. Oh, okay, okay. It's so hard to be a criminal these days. It's oh, so wow. much harder. I'm, I'm so glad I don't have to be. Like, I know, <laughs> right? Like even at Home Depot, okay. my hustle was the diamond drill bits, the little small diamond oh, I drill bits. I went in phases with that. Yeah. But they eventually put up, we were all, that's the other funny thing. We were all doing the same hustle and everybody, I'm like, no story is unique. Every drug addict from Florida to Washington state was doing the Home Depot hustle, the Walmart hustle, stealing the same things. I'm like, but the beautiful thing to me about that is because we all had the same story, I believe we all have the same solution, right? Like once you finally agree and you say that, I have this problem. I am this thing. 
the steps on the wall, I'm a 12 step person too. I, a lot, some of our audience isn't and that's fine, but I'm a 12 step person too. And I heard somebody say once those steps were written in someone else's blood. Somebody else came before us. And if we have that problem, then this can be our solution. We were all doing the same thing. So this universal solution can work, you know, but eventually they put a sensor by the drill bits and I put my hand in and it went off. And I was like, what? Fuck. <laughs> and I had just gotten my ID with, I didn't use it, you know, for six months. And I was like, and I was like, damn it, hustle gone. <laughs> yeah. We had this hustle side note. We had this hustle belt. Like you could get these bright and silver belts and they were like two to 50 to $300 a piece. And I would get four of those and I would get a po- set of pots and pans made by Paula Dean that were $999 and 99 cent. Right. I'd never leave the store. I just go up to the return desk, grab, grab the belts, grab the pots and get a gift card, $2,000 and go sell it for 50% on the dollar. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I was caught that too. I mean, I did that from here to Alabama. Yeah. I mean, it was like every belt <laughs> along the way. I'm not allowed that's, back. Yeah. Belt. That's a lot. That's been a hustle for people receipt shopping and stuff yeah. like that. Oh yeah. I would stand but next yeah. to a trash can and um, like, <laughs> just kind of like glance in, like I wasn't <laughs> looking for cash receipts because I didn't want to look like a homeless person. I was a homeless person, but I'd be like pretending. And then I'd act like, I'd be like, oh shoot, I, I dropped something in case anybody was looking at me and see if I could find like a cash receipt so and like it living that way is so difficult you know it's so hard to live that way you know it's so much easier and it's so funny I thought it would be so hard to live the right way you know but I feel like it's just so much easier that that's just constant difficult you know what I mean constant struggle you know yeah Okay, so this this is just something that I've noticed and I've heard other people say, and I don't know if you guys can like attest to this, so maybe both of you can answer this, but something, I mean, and I've been to meetings in other states and stuff like that, but something I've kind of noticed, and I think I usually ask this to like women guests, so I'll be in a meeting, right, and I'll and it'll be a co-ed meeting, so men, men and women, whatever, and you know, they do like, raise your hand if you're, if you're a man, you can sponsor, and then they'll be like, raise your hand if you're a woman, you can sponsor, and so like, and, and, and so what I've noticed is like, there's not a lot of women sponsors, you know what I mean? And so something that like make, it makes me wonder is like, is it like harder for women to recover because of all, cause I feel like women like go through, like, it depends on the person. Like some people, like if you're destitutely homeless and like, you're like living that lifestyle and things like that, I feel like certain people go through like different things that makes it like harder for them to recover. I've noticed like in some meetings you, you like, like a whole crowd of men will raise their hands and then like but it'll be like harder for a female to find a sponsor per se it's just something i've noticed i don't know here here in the here in the tri-county area um it kind of i've noticed the same thing i'm really sure what the i i really don't know the statistics behind that um you know it's wild that you would think like, I don't, I think men and women both experience trauma and, 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 but on different levels, I think women are like way handle it a different on a different level than men do. And maybe it takes them longer to identify that and realize, or maybe come to the acceptance of like, Hey, I'm an alcoholic or an addict, you know, like they're in denial or they have to hold that mother role of being, you know, the wife, the mom, the whatever, and they can't show weakness. Cause they have all this other stuff. Like, I don't know. I think everyone's different. Um, so I, I can't, I don't know that I could even answer that question. We yeah. have a lot kind of evens out here. It just depends on the meeting you go to here. 
um, you know, there are a lot of like at a, one of the local meeting houses is predominantly male. Um, but then you go at a different time, it's all women, you know? So it's like kind of evens out down yeah. here. I, <clears throat> I do know what you mean though. Like, but then the sponsorship thing in particular, like they're not as further along. I, I, I heard in my, one of the rehabs that I went to that statistically it less women stay clean for longer. And I actually asked the guy why the owner and he said, I think nobody is really sure the answer to that, which is weird, but his guess was women can stay out longer because a guy can sell drugs or take care of them, or there's the solicitation angle, that kind of thing. And so they might be coming, but they're not in there yet. And like the boyfriend is going to probably do the home invasions or the burglaries, you know what I mean? And so y'all are getting caught and women can find a different guy. It, it was his guess. So, and that kind of makes sense to me. I didn't do, you know, my, my ex is the one that did the real dangerous, you know what I mean? Like I'd be at home, you know? So that was, that was what he had suggested, but I've always actually wondered, that's interesting that you asked that name. Cause I've always wondered what the reason behind that is. Cause I've heard that same thing, you know, but there is more men. I mean, if you even think about it back in 1934, when the book is written, you know, Bill and Bob, like right. there's probably male then they, they didn't really, women didn't get introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous till years later. Right. Well, there's you know? that chapter to the wives yeah. Like, yeah. about oh, us, yeah. how to help us, yeah. you know? And I'm yeah. like, all right. We're, we're yeah. Right. Oh yeah, for sure. You know? No, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. yeah. It's just, it's just an observation. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if it's because like men are predatorial in the rooms and it, and it goes both ways. Cause I mean, I got one, my 90 days. So I had like 90 days and I was dating a girl with five years. So I definitely got preyed upon. So it goes both <laughs> ways, but you definitely see more women get preyed upon than you do like vice versa in the rooms and you know you know what i mean i'm just saying like it, maybe that's it, it too it, it so they go out sooner or something i don't know maybe, you maybe, know what maybe, though, Nate? we should keep asking people this let's keep asking yeah, the female yeah because i want to get yeah i just notice it in a, in a lot of the meetings that i get to like they'll ask for women to raise their hands and it's just like few and far between i'm like damn you know yeah you know when we first get sober we're so vulnerable though and we like thrive off that attention because you're like you're just feeling emotions and stuff for the first time or being able to like differentiate from different emotions and feelings and like mm -hmm. you have all these things and then this guy is looking at you and you automatically think like oh he wants me you know and oh like, oh and yeah like oh there's my higher power the same thing you know it's like oh yeah well for you know? me <laughs> It would be the, it's the only thing I had, right? Like I would get yeah. back and after I got some weight back on and my skin cleared from picking, you know, 30 days, yeah. I'm looking better. I could start like doing, and I would like dress up for meetings and do my hair. And they, like the counselors would sometimes like get irritated with me at my program. And looking back, it's like, well, that was all I had. It was all I had. I didn't even have a phone. I didn't have a car, but like I could dress up, you know, I had that. And I didn't think that at the time, but looking yeah. back now, I wear sweatpants to meetings. I look like shit at meetings typically, you know, like, and I think that that was, it was all I had, you know, I was like, I can at least still kind of smile, you know, it's all I got. You had control over that, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a common thing for people early recovery, yeah. you know? Yeah. They, well, it was they, also the first time I was seeing other people that were like yeah. normal, you know, we weren't all in a motel room, you know, staring up, yeah. people, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So definitely okay well thank you so much this was thank amazing thank you so much for your time you're yeah, such you. you're a great storyteller and 
you definitely speak as well as you write. And I just, I love that excerpt in the book. I, like you've, you've left a legacy just right there. Obviously you're going to leave a legacy through Oxford house and all of the work that you do, but also there it's tangible in that book, you know? So. Yeah. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you guys so much. Okay. And Nate, I'll call you right. too. Okay. Awesome. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. No problem, Nate. Thank you. You're welcome.